Hi everyone and welcome to Impressionable. This is a podcast in which we try and figure out the ways in which we've been shaped by the world. This week I am joined by Dr. Joe Parslow, who is a lecturer and academic at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. This is a really interesting conversation. We talk all about drag studies, we talk all about RuPaul's Drag Race and basically just contemporary performance and yeah I definitely indulge in my own interest but I really hope that this opens your mind if it's not something that you've previously been interested in before it's a really good conversation and thank you again to Joe for chatting with me I hope you enjoy the episode speak to you at the end bye Hello and welcome back to Impressionable, the podcast where we try and figure out the ways in which we've been influenced by the world and the legacies that we'd like to leave. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Joe Parslow. Hiya. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. I feel like I should say that I just did insist on being introduced as doctor, but um, that is because I worked really hard on the PhD, so I'm very happy to be, uh, to be introduced as that as much as possible. I, I would do it too. And also, can we talk about your fabulous background? <laughs> yes, I'm I'm surrounded by the kind of the uh, debris of my husband's performance. So this is, he's a drag performer called Me the Drag Queen. So there's a kind of colour-coded array of, of drag and then and then some random academic books in the background, which is my small part of the, of the room, right? It's for the books. That's such a nice uh, like display together. I love that. Um, and for those who don't know you, could you give us a brief introduction to who you are and what you get up to? Yeah, so um, I am a lecturer in contemporary performance at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London. So a lot of my time is spent there where I do, uh, I teach undergraduates and postgraduates and a few PhD students in um, applied theatre, so like community theatre, uh, as well as experimental performance and writing for performance. Uh, and then I also do my own research. So I'm a researcher and I particularly look at drag performance and queer communities and the ways in which communities come together around spaces where drag happens. So that's sort of how I spend my time. Beyond that, I, I spend a lot of time in the kind of, in London's drag scene, I guess. Um, I used to produce lots of shows. I do less of that now but I'm often around that world that's so exciting and I can't wait for us to talk uh, all about that but the question that I ask everyone uh, that I want to start with is what's something that's been making an impression on you recently um I was thinking about this before and and uh it feels like I'm gonna be like I, I should have a day off but I'm gonna talk about the fact that I very recently saw Mother Goose which is the there's a touring pantomime of Mother Goose with Ian McKellen as Mother Goose in it. And it's got John Bishop as, as wife and, and, and an amazing cast. I saw it at the Duke of York Theatre uh, the other day. And it was just the most stupid, joyful, filthy thing in the world. And it was, just, I don't know, it was really, really pleasurable and completely like escapism. And then there was these two moments in it, one where Ian McKellen, just after, so the story of Mother Goose is quite an old one. And, and, and there's a bit where Mother Goose decides she's already been made rich by the goose that lays golden eggs. And then she kind of gets tempted and, and on various different versions of the story, it's tempted to become beautiful, tempted to become, and this one it's tempted to become famous. And, and Ian McKellen comes forward and, and the kind of screen comes down so they can obviously do a, a change and does this kind of this monologue at the front of the stage and it's like beautiful about the fact that like like 
I this I was eight years old sitting in front of an audience, sitting in an audience watching a pantomime and I wanted to be up there. I wanted to be famous. And it was like really heartbreaking and and truthful and real. And then at the end, the the, the he does this um he does like a soliloquy from merchant and venice about mercy and you kind of go and i'm not really a massive shakespeare fan but and 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 you go oh fuck that's why shakespeare is amazing so you have this kind of really stupid playful filthy whatever panto that's pure escapism and then these two moments of like proper acting that are like really (laughs) sort of profound and moving and yeah it was just wonderful it was just great that's amazing. I, you know, in the context of the episode as well, I feel like um, the first introduction of drag for me was probably pantomime. You know, the like pantomime dames. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's often the thing that we first, that that our first, yeah, most people's first concept of drag is through the dame. My my husband, as I mentioned already, um, me is uh, like has a story about the panto dame from from his local pantomime was also the like funeral director in the town. That there's these kind of really amazing like stories of you go know, like the, the, like and so they're often really community focused as well in loads of different ways. It's really interesting. Of course, what kind of um, sparked your interest in you know studying drag um, and queer studies more widely? So what made you want to do the PhD? Um. I I guess some of it stemmed from starting. I was going out loads, so I did my undergraduate in like community theatre work, and 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 I started to go and see stuff. And I was dating my now husband at the time, and he was a burlesque performer called Mister Mistress, who was sort of transitioning into being a drag performer called Method. So we were, I was out a lot, and I was standing in the audience watching shows, and I was like feeling stuff happen. I was going, there's, there's something going on here that's more than just us all coming out and standing in a crowd and watching a show and and and, and like I, I'm being moved in a particular way. I'm feeling things. Sorry, that wine is my dog behind me. Um, I'm being yeah, so yeah. So I'm being moved in a particular way. I'm I'm being um, uh, like taken to a different place but also other people around me are clearly reacting in a different way and are clearly feeling stuff and so partly the phd and and kind of queer studies more generally was a process of going how do i what's the thing that's happening really like what what is this this feeling in my chest and how do i articulate it and how do i claim that actually it's doing something more than just that it's doing community somehow and how have you conceptualized that feeling do you know what it is yet I don't in a way no in a way it's it, it the feeling is um is is kind of still is always beyond my ability to kind of put into words and I think queer is often that I think for me queer is this thing which is beyond what I can articulate it's the thing that's beyond language but in another way I think it's kind of community I think that feeling is community so I think about community not mm-hmm. as a a, a bounded area that we know often we think about local communities um but rather think about communities as a set of feelings and practices and so i might feel part of a community for the duration of a show or one act or 30 seconds of an act because we're all doing something together and then i go away and that feeling disappears but that feeling might emerge again at a different point and so i think for me it's it's both this thing which is beyond language but also for me it might also be community is the closest word we have i reckon for it definitely that's that's super interesting and I, I feel like that that intangible feeling that you're talking about I felt it before you know mm. in certain periods and it, it is often you know in spaces where art is being created and it's kind of like this dynamic between a performer and, and people that are there you know collectively watching 
Yeah, and 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 come, you know, and there's some good, there's some great intellectual ideas that help us think about this. So I, I drew a lot on a writer called Jill Dolan, who's like a feminist theatre writer, but she wrote this book called Utopia in Performance. That and and she has this line about utopian performatives being like moments in a in a show where you, where everything's a bit more emotion. She says like emotionally voluminous and intersubjectively intense, where you're like lifted above yourself for a moment, and you can kind of see further. And then you kind of come back to Earth, but those feelings remain. And I use a lot of those ideas to help think about utopias, hopes, things on the horizon, like all of those. And Jose Munoz, who's a queer writer who wrote a book called Cruising Utopia, wrote about the idea of queerness as horizontal, as on the horizon, as not yet here, but something that we might feel. And I think that there's some, those ideas in relation to performance are really useful because often performance is this thing which is which is not quite real. It's not quite there. It's something that's fluid and all of those things and, and and therefore those feelings that it produces are also that in some way yeah 100% and we're going to get into that but I feel like we need to start almost like on a level playing field and how mm. most people conceptualize drag um mm. and I feel like we've been missing a trick uh, by not talking about RuPaul's Drag Race mm-hmm. um and I wanted you to just maybe chime in on how you think that it's represented the drag community or how you think it portrays it in mainstream media um and is it is it doing a good thing is it doing a bad thing what are your thoughts Mm -hmm. um it's kind of the it's it's a big question (laughs) and it's a question that i think that that as somebody who kind of has been doing this for a while it's a question that you get asked a lot like oh what about drag race and 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 um part I think that the the issue the issue with any subcultural practice going into the mainstream means that something will change when it moves into the mainstream, like and it won't feel as authentic or real or whatever it is that it, that it did before before it did that. And so, Drag Race. The problem with Drag Race in many ways is that what it tries, what it says it is, is not what it is because it can't be. So, Drag Race claims to be this thing which is about love and about community and about representing the best of drag whereas what it's doing is it's a reality tv competition that is representing the people who are best at being drag doing drag on reality tv and and i think if it uh, and and so part of the the challenge comes from the fact that it's trying to do it claims to be something that it's not and 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 claims to be kind of representing a wider set of ideas than, than it's not and so the and and that's where i think we we really kind of that's where it that that's what the struggle is but you know in many ways, it's also shone a light. I wouldn't, we, I wouldn't have had the career I had without it. Whether I like that or not, I wouldn't have had the career I had without that. Um, with, without Drag Race, um, I spent a lot of my time between the years 2013 and 2015 putting on shows with Drag Race performers. So my husband and I ran a night called The Meth Lab. We were one of the first people to start bringing Drag Race girls from America to the UK. So this was at the time between seasons four and seven really was the the main ones and so we had our first person that we had was Raja we had Detox Willem and Vicky Vox DWV when they were performing we had Latrice Manila Ben La Creme those sorts of people Bianca Del Rio and and at that point in the world they were tight in time they were only coming to see they, they were coming to the UK to perform with us in London, go to perform in Glasgow and go to perform in Dublin. And that was kind of the tour. And now there's kind of everywhere. And obviously we've got our own version and there's these international versions. And, and, and 
that kind of extrapolation means that what you have is this this kind of machine that there's no outside of that there's no there's 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 no point in the year where there's not an episode of drag race or there's not a series of drag race running um and if the only exposure people have to drag is as this kind of televised form then they come to judge all of drag by that in some way so Mm -hmm. that really happens with um uh that happens loads with um kinging for example so people see drag people who haven't seen drag uh beyond drag race think that drag kinging which is most often done by kind of queer women and trans men not only but you know when you think about that uh are um are erased or aren't good enough or aren't aren't the same you know aren't like and so you have these um these things or when people don't spend money on their drag they're somehow not doing as good good drag and so um there's an amazing text which is actually on behind me on oh that's hidden i think behind me on the screen uh (laughs) called contemporary drag practices and performers it's a a first volume of a two-volume series edited by steve farrier and mark edward and in that book they talk about drag races being a being a yardstick and a yardstick can be used to measure but it can also be used to beat and and i think that's the the best description i've had of it is that it gets you it gets you unfortunately the 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 success of drag race gets used to to beat down uh, in loads of different ways and i think that's probably one of the challenges that we face yeah i mean two really interesting things that you mentioned there the first one which was kind of like what i was thinking was how a certain type of drag is valued and often elevated like if, if you like fit into this idea of how drag performers ought to be you tend to go far and anyone that deviates away from that or doesn't kind of fit into that mold not don't do as well in you know in in quotation marks and the second thing that you mentioned was about the expense and how often inaccessible it can be um you know there's been a few iconic moments or infamous moments on drag race where um some queens have been you know berated for not looking expensive enough or not spending enough money on an outfit can you can you talk a bit more about that as well so I think, I mean, I think there's two really important points there. One is that absolutely there's kind of a drag race mold. And so you can kind of see that every year, every year they kind of cast, oh, that's the X one. That's the, that's the Y one. Now, the problem is, is when those, when those forms also imply identities so that you have only a certain number of like black performers in the UK being cast on the show. And that's discriminatory in a, fun, in a fundamental case. Um, or you have a, or um when that is related to gender identity so when you only have certain numbers of trans performers being performing on the show and those sorts of things so like it's you know there are clearly molds and models that drag race holds up as good um but anything being held up as good comes with a load of different a load of baggage which is about who gets to do what who gets to access to things and i think the thing with money is really is really really interesting because it's really common knowledge that performers who go on the show often spend tens of thousands of pounds or dollars um to do that and sometimes going to debt to do that to slimy producers um and you know so there's this kind of like so the economy of it is really is really really challenging because clearly the people who can do well on the show can't um are the ones who can afford to, to, to who can afford to do that now that isn't always the case but it's mostly the case and it's been the case for a long time really i think in, in, in many of the later seasons i mean and that fundamentally means that only those who have disposable income or are willing to risk their income can go on it right and that's you know that that's it that's that's there's nothing you, you can't really do do much more about that and that's where i feel like um 
the challenge of what the show claims to be and what it actually is, is it comes up because the show claims to be the Olympics of drag or whatever it wants to frame itself as. But it, what it means is it's the, it's the, it's the Olympics of who can spend the most money on it. And you know, that like fundamentally that, that discriminates against people. Yeah, of course. And I feel like for some performers, it might be a bit of a necessary evil because it's propelled so many people's careers that even if, you know, it's going to put you into debt, even if you might disagree with the way that the productions run, mm -hmm. you kind of have to do it if you want this to be your livelihood. Yeah. And, and you know, particularly at a point where where because of Drag Race, the, the drag field is like hugely saturated. There's more drag performers than there ever has been. And it's and it's kind of huge thing. And so there's always, you know, but behind every person who's got a gig, there's 10 people who didn't get it, who will be willing to do it for less money. Mm -hmm. So there is maybe this kind of also this fear that the economy of drag is so is so um expanded at the moment that there is oh it's the only way to get success i mean i think that that it i would be surprised if it survives as like if 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 the like i don't know how much longer the scene can take it like in the uk i mean the us is a different beast i think um the uk I know people who don't apply anymore because they just like, why would I want to be on that show? Some good people who would be great on the show who people assume would have been on by now because they, because they're sort of done with it. Um, and, and I don't think that's a better decision than the people who've gone on it. You know, I have pals who've been on the show who I really love and really respect. And I think that they've done great things with it. Um, but it's interesting. I think for me, the thing that I'm really fascinated by is that 10 years ago, not even that five years ago, being able to just be doing drag full time and getting by was like a huge marker of success, right? You've achieved it. If, you, if that, if jo mm. drag is your main job, th then then that's it. Suddenly this, this adds in like a whole other thing that people assume you want. So if you don't go on drag race, suddenly that's assumed to be like, oh, you haven't got this thing that you should want rather than, so it kind of shifted the goalposts of what success looks like in a really neoliberal way, which is that you're on TV, that you've got individual success, that you've done all of these different things. And so, you know, there's this kind of extra, I guess it's like almost an extra layer of, of, of judgment that you kind of have on, the, on, on all of that. Having said that, all of that, like what the show does do is take drag to a wider audience. It does bring ideas that, mm -hmm politically are really interesting i think about the conversations around non-binaryness in season two with Ginny lemon and bimini you know those are interesting conversations that are being t blasted into people's house houses you know that there's a those are good things and it and there are individual agents on the show who do good stuff i'm like cheddar gorgeous is gonna do amazing things with that with the platform that's been given right um but so and people like dayla and latrice and sasha of law like you know there's people who do good stuff with it so it's not like every it's not like the show is impossible to do good stuff with it's just that the structures only enable certain people to do well on it 100 i'm i'm a big cheddar gorgeous fan she's honestly um... <laughs> But, you know, interesting what you're saying about um, kind of that neoliberal influence and how um, more brands have decided to kind of like opt into the space and they want to work with queens in a way that, you know, we've never seen before too. Mm -hmm. Or you kind of have like drag slash influencer slash, you know, podcast slash TV mm -hmm. host in a realm where we, we I didn't see them growing up, especially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, you know, and I think there was drag in the uh, in the in the world beyond beyond clubs. You know, I'm thinking about Lily Savage mm -hmm. um, in the '90s, and thinking about Danny Larue in the '70s, '60s, and '70s. You know, so there was these kind of, but but what pop culture yeah. looked like was much was much 
smaller or much more contained. So now pop culture is, yes, as you say, podcasts and TikTok and God, I sound so bloody old uh and like all you know and tv and doing your thing and having this kind of portfolio career that you do all these things in and i do think you know suddenly there is the, maybe an expectation that you do all of those things but that often is framed yeah through like the the solo individual project and so what you know one of the things that i'm really interested in is that the performers that i've tended to work with have also been as part of collectives in different ways and, and being part of groups or being part of you know community like small mm. micro communities and i think like often the drag that I like is the drag that's happening in those spaces although not only but you know there's an interesting the drive towards the solo performer doing all of the work and doing really well belies the fact that to make a show requires all of these different yeah 100 percent um and you know you spoke about the space getting bigger um and how inclusive do you think um drag is now like how easy would it be um for people to get involved well I mean I guess it's interesting because I think in one way like access to being able to do drag or or and and think about it as a career is like what it's like way more accessible because there are makeup tutorials all over youtube and you can kind of see a ready-made oh i do this gig and this gig and this gig you know there's there's more it being a thing that you can do acceptably is like way more and it can and it being visibly a career that people do in the world means that the blueprints are kind of clearer for people um and that there are brat there there's an economy around it so you can get wigs made you can get makeup that is marketed specifically for drag performers you can get shoes that are marketed you know like there's all of this sort of stuff i guess the challenge is that the the that economy is so huge that when you're trying that getting a foot in the door is really difficult when there's you know, hundreds of newer performers emerging every year. Um, and I think often, so we'll talk, probably talk about this later, but I work with my husband a bit on a on a competition called Not Another Drag Competition. And and one of the challenges of that as a, as a thing is that I think sometimes it's because we've had quite a few people do that competition and then go on to do Drag Race, that sometimes it can be seen as a a prep mm. for that or a prep for having success in in drag and actually we always say it might give you the tools to have success but it won't give you the success necessarily because that requires loads of different things to happen and sometimes what that requires is a bit of luck and a bit of being in the right space at the right time but my but the challenge in terms of inclusivity and how we make and, and how drag is inclusive is that it's it's not it's a it can't be like no because nothing can be fully inclusive nothing nothing no art form is fully inclusive or fully accessible whichever way we want to think about it um and that often like something being inclusive is leveled more at marginalized forms you know because they already you know often so we would we don't make we we often don't have the same conversation about i don't know punch drunk shows or whatever that like how accessible or how inclusive are punch drunk shows or whatever because they're kind of because they're kind of more broadly resonant but you know the problem with it is that if only certain people can afford to do the thing or if only certain people can get into the spaces that are being done um then that does mean that the type of work that's made starts to stagnate or get boring or Mm. those sorts of things right so inclusivity doesn't just mean economic or identity-based inclusivity but it's also about form about all those different things and so i think you know competitions are 
challenging and aren't always the right thing for people to do but they offer good training grounds sometimes there are courses there's like soho's drag soho theater do a drag course there's those sorts of things but sometimes it requires going out and getting stuff and doing stuff or making your own shows so when we started there weren't really shows that people would book my husband and the family that we worked with for so we did our own stuff um and and that means I think I talk in my PhD a bit about the practice of making community work. And some of some of the practice of making community work is doing things like doing the door and clearing up after yourselves and being nice to people and showing up and being at shows and doing all those sorts of things which aren't paid necessarily, but allow the work to happen. I've just knocked something off of my side. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I think you kind of touched on this idea of um, drag as being almost inherently political. Um, and, you know, some criticisms mm-hmm. in the past of that, you know, maybe some drag performance can be seen as misogynistic because obviously it's like this performance of, of, of a woman in, in many cases. What What's your mm-hmm. response to that? And do you think there is the potential for drag to become problematic? I mean, totally. And and I see, you know, and I, I like like even in like the earliest bits of thinking around it, I'm thinking about like Judith Butler in the 90s saying that drag can both serve as a parody or to kind of hold up the kind of patriarchal the patriarchal norms now like like uh, i think drag has load that i've seen misogynist drag and i've seen you know sexist drag all of those sorts of things and they, they do exist because because drag queens in particular if they are parodying if they're parodying a certain form of femininity or they're parodying a certain form of female experience then they do have the potential to, to do that you know i think that something being political doesn't mean that it is um doesn't doesn't mean that it's politically good <laughs> politically mm. good fundamentally but it's interesting it's also about the context in which that work happens right and so i think about this in relation to the drag that you the drag that you would get in um the drag that i would offer that we might see at the rvt often is different at the royal voxel tavern in, in the kind of really famous like drag venue and and gay bar queer space uh there's some really useful like depending on which night of the week you go, you'd see different drag that wouldn't work on each other's nights, right? Because they have specific audiences and, they're, and, they're, and those audiences have different sensitivities. And I thought about this a lot. I was on holiday in Cyprus with my husband and his family over the summer break. And we went to a, a drag show. It was called a drag family show. Um, and um, and it was... the there was there was moments of the show that were that i knew would be like would have been th- like cancelled within moments of being on being in some of the venues that we'd work in in london um um and yet the show was popular right? the, the the audience was populated mostly by working class women who mm. have gone on their third the only holiday of the year they've saved up to to go to the holiday the type of women who raise me the type of women who you know who know when they are being insulted and so there's often this claim towards i don't know this form of drag and misogynist and yet there are a load of women in that room who are clearly enjoying it and know that the joke isn't on them they mm. know where the joke is directed and so i think sometimes there's a sensitivity around the offense that drag might cause that doesn't pay attention to the politics of the work in its location, but also to the fact that audiences are clever and audiences know when they're having the piss taken out of them and know and 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 exercise the right to leave a show or do whatever or to heckle or to shout out those things, you know. But sometimes we can kind of read offense um rather than read the context of what's actually happening. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think you can apply that in so many other different spheres and contexts outside of drag. 
And, and but on the flip side, I wanted to know about maybe some of the ways in which drag performance can be used, you know, as a tool for social or political activism. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's low, you know, I think about this I, I recently, like we, I, I was supposed to be working earlier and staring at Instagram on my computer <laughs> and saw like three shows of drag performers putting on shows to raise funds for people's gender transition surgeries, mm. right? <laughs> you know, so like already we have kind of a, an engagement with that. I think that there are moments in which even the most um, basic let's say standard man in a dress singing Shirley Bassey songs which I don't mean disparagingly because I fucking love Shirley Bassey (laughs) you know like but the most what we think of as the most stereotypical drag performer is it has a radical relationship to gender and so I was thinking about this watching Mother Goose the other day there's this there's a bit in it where um and hopefully these aren't any spoilers but where you sort of see behind a gauze you see McKellen sort of take off the breastplate that they're clearly wearing and to become like famous or whatever. And then it's the interval. But like that, in that moment, there's a moment of radical politics, which is the body on stage is not the, is not the same as the identity of the character that you're reading. There's something radical and interesting going on there. But, you know, like I, like, and beyond those moments, there's also, you know, for me, activism, yes, is, is about like, we'll have, a, we'll engage with a political cause. So thinking about, Panty Bliss and her work in in relation to marriage equality in Ireland, you know, the speech on the Abbey stage, which is so iconic, you know, there's a moment of direct political action, but also sometimes for me, the being stupid and being silly is a kind of activist political practice, particularly at a time, and I've written about this in some work around failure and silliness, like that the, uh, at times of economic and social precarity, at times of transphobia and, and homophobia on the increase, you know, we, what we what sometimes you need is someone to be stupid around you. There's an amazing performer called Fabulous uh, who who um, does these amazing impersonations that are sort of always slightly off, but amazing and wonderful and does Liza Minnelli. And I've written about them in relation to this, that that sometimes what you need is someone doing a Liza Minnelli impersonation. And that, be, and that is a profound moment of radicalness because we're reminded to come out of our rooms and hear, like listen to music play and all of those sorts of things. And so for like in my own work i'm less interested in some ways in work that is directly here is my political statement and i'm more interested in how do the politics emerge through what's happening on the stage or in the space that's amazing was were, were they some of the things that inspired you to start not another drag competition yeah i mean so the competition is i mean look, i i would be doing a disservice to my husband to say that it was it was me it, like it's that really it started from from him wanting to wanting to run a competition which which i think really came from the fact that when he started doing moving from burlesque into drag lo, there just wasn't any training for it he also did some competitions that were really injurious that were just well not injurious because that makes it sound but were just crap right they just gave nothing they were just about free labor i guess the thing that we do in not another drag competition the big thing that we try to do is to um provide a space which is at least um where where people can be brave and can take risks in those things and we do workshops with industry professionals every week so people even if they're not being paid for their performance are getting kind of experience with with industry professionals and being exposed to a right a wide range of people um and they get mentoring with my husband every every week as well and and generally the re it seems to be that we produce good we produce some good people um if we're going in drag race terms we've had cheryl hole and sister sister and baby and tace 
and I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, Veronica Green, <laughs> uh, who all came through, you know, have all come through our competition before we're heading on to Drag Race, right? but also you can look at the, Lon- the London drag scene and beyond and see people like Chio and Mark Anthony, like Wet Mess, who's doing amazing things, Charcuterie, that girl was just an um, amazing season last season with By Curious George, who won Sweet FA, won the season afterwards. You know, there's this kind of really amazing group of people that I'm so proud to have come through that. And partly that came from, yeah, we want people to get into a room and do some stuff. Partly it came from wanting to, recognising a gap of like emerging talent that that weren't that weren't able to kind of necessarily break into the industry more widely and so we hope it does that you know and it's not perfect i don't think there's such a thing as an ethical competition i don't think you can be ethical and do competition we talked about neoliberalism earlier right competition is the fundamental starting point of neoliberalism you like like there are issues with it someone goes home every week right that's 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 not a that, that there's an issue there's a thing there and if and it's not right for everyone but what it does do i think is often open up the opportunity for people to learn more about why they want to do what they do and build up skills and perform in front of an audience and build a build a following and those sorts of things and so i think that you know one of the things that we're working on at the moment is around pay the big barrier for people like we talked about with drag race earlier is that we is that we it, it's not paid at the moment and we're working on a way to be able to pay people to be in this show um, even if it's not a full fee, pay for a bit of money for their expenses each week, you know, and that will hopefully break down some of those barriers and make it a bit more inclusive. And I wanted to ask you actually how you determine, you know, when we talk about these ideas of like deconstructing what's good and bad drag, how do you decide who to knock out? Well, I mean, the thing with the competition that my husband and I do is we do we once we decide on the final, however, who go into the heats. So there's like, you know, we have we get like 60 odd applications every time and we have to whistle it down to, I think, 24. Mm. Normally, we normally do three rounds of heats and we do that a bit in relation to the RVT. And normally that's, you know, that's kind of based on who we who we think will do well in the competition or who we think will benefit from the competition. Um but then after that we have no say so it's audience votes and and it's judges and so we're really clear from that point on that we that actually so when audiences go why did this person go home you're like well you should have voted for them you know (laughs) so it's uh so like and that's a really big part of it actually it's difficult to mentor people for my husband to mentor if if at some level Mm. he's deciding who goes home right actually pedagogically if i think about this as like as a teacher being able to have that distance and be like well this is why i think the judges might have thought this but what do you think like that actually as a teaching tool it's really useful to have that distance so you know we ask the judges to score each performer out of 10 privately not you know and we have three judges each week and the judge is a head judge who's there every week a mentor who's worked with them and then someone in the industry who's like known for that skill so if it's a burlesque week we have amazing burlesque performers you know all of that sort of stuff um, and then the audience vote and the audience generally are people who come every week or come back season after season mm. and so they're not then it's rare that someone gets in because they have all their friends there it's it's much it's it's often you see the votes really shift depending on who does well and who doesn't each week and so you know that distance is really helpful because it means that we can kind of have a critical conversation about why something was good or bad in that context without having made the decision and just because I'm curious and I want to get involved because I'd love to come along how often does it run where can people find it could you just give the lid down yeah yeah so it is we normally do it twice a year at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern to the RVT which is in Vauxhall in South London um 
and if you look at both the 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 rvt's social medias so i think it's like the underscore rvt those sorts of places on twitter and instagram or my husband's who is at me the drag queen um me the drag queen um you will find um you'll find information there we're going to announce soon the casting call for the next season but we normally do like a spring season and an autumn one so we've done three we did five seasons in a, in Camden in a venue called Her Upstairs that we used to run that's closed down in 2018. And then we've done three seasons now at the RVT. And we just did a Christmas All-Stars special where we brought back lots of people to to do. And it was really lovely. And what was really nice at the Christmas one was seeing people who've gone through the competition and then gone out in the world and be like, oh, you, they're better. They're better than they were. They've improved. The competition works. They've done good stuff, which is nice. It's good to know. Yeah, that's a, and I like that people like coming back to those communities that like made them in a way, or like you know, helped them on their way too. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely, and you kind of see that, and people support each other, and contestants across seasons book each other, and yeah, it's a, it yeah. feels like there's a kind of great group of people there. Yeah, and kind of looking into the future, um, mm-hmm. what changes would you, what do, you, what changes do you think are coming, and what changes would you like to see? I don't know if I have any sense of what changes are coming. I mean, I think that like we're about to hit some form of crunch with what drag race is going to do. Like I don't mm-hmm. I don't know how it will sustain itself. Um I would like to see a kind of more equitable engagement with how people can sustain themselves in drag. So whether that's new performers getting into the scene or whether that's mid-career people being able to get to the next stage or whether that's people at the people who want to retire being able to do that. You know, I think that I would love to see that. In a way, I kind of want to see like a union, a drag union beyond equity that might, you know, like enable that. I want to see promoters of big tours paying properly. Um, I think that the future of drag has to has to be one which understands that just because you've been on TV doesn't mean that you're worth you're worth 20 times more than someone who hasn't been when it's the judge of you know one old drag queen who decides who gets on at a certain level so I think you know like a kind of equitable more hopeful scene would be really useful but I'd also like to see a bit more risks I think what I my hope for the scene is that is that it can hold multiplicity we you know we are we are uh that we're able to kind of have a more complex conversation about who does drag and why it happens and what it does i think sometimes because of because it feels so fraught to be queer at the moment maybe and to be trans mm-hmm. at the moment because that's a really complex time to be in sometimes the conversation we have about the work that we might make as part of these communities feels quite ironically binary that it's either good or bad it's this or that and i think i'd hope for a more risk um i don't know welcoming set of practices but also more spaces because we've lost so many queer spaces so i want we, we need more we need more of that stuff we need more spaces where people can do drag more spaces where they can try out a better understanding of early career nights where they pay well I'm just shouting now, minimum wage. We need a minimum fee that people aren't paid less than, you know, all of that stuff. We need, we need a, we need a union and, uh, you know, and a, and a load of new venues. I love it. How, ama- <laughs> how amazing would a drag union be, please? Or just a performance union. That'd be so cool. Yeah. And, you know, and like equity are really good for certain things, you know, like yeah. as a, as a but, but I do think there is something that's very specific about kind of drag and cabaret that could use a bit of, a bit of work but yeah. yeah um so just before we finish i just wanted to pivot slightly because you're part of the queer futures working group 
Um, and we kind of mm. spoke a little bit um, about this in our previous conversation, which was super interesting, um, kind of about how things are conceptualized like internationally as well when um, yeah. doing kind of queer theory, um, everything to do with that mm. realm. Could you talk a bit about the work that goes on there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So this is my first year where I've not been the convener of the group. But um, so the Queer Futures Working Group is a kind of is a working group that's part of the International Federation of Theatre Research, which is a big international kind of organisation. And there's loads of different working groups. There's working groups on political performance. There's working groups on popular entertainment. There's one on on actor training, I think, or something like that. You know, so there's kind of a whole range of different things and performance and technology. And the Queer Futures Working Group was set up a little while ago, well, probably 10, 15 years ago by Alison Campbell and Fintan Walsh and then some other people, um, Laszlo Perlman and Sarah Mullen run it before me. And then I've been running it with um, Ankush Gupta and Fatima Mann, who are both um, kind of academics, international queer academics. And we've been, you know, so we ran it between 2018 and 2021, something like that. Um, and it's kind of a, generally themed around a conference where we come together to do some thinking around performance in a kind of academic conference but also often go and see work wherever we've been so i've been to we did it in stockholm belgrade shanghai i was supposed to be in um galway during the pandemic but it didn't obviously make it there and we've been in iceland and so it's kind of tours around the world and so what's really interesting is that there is that what you get is you see the way that queerness is conceptualized in different places or understood or not in different places and and for me it's really fascinating because you know what counts as radical and queer in one place might feel really domesticated and defanged in another what counts as you know as as a kind of radical conception of identity in one place might feel very mundane in another and so it's really taught me the ways in which we you know we have to be really careful as in full of care about how we think about queerness internationally and i think maybe not to bring it back to drag race because i hate doing it all the time and i sort of feel like i've talked about it forever but <laughs> one of the problems with it is that it then tries to do drag it goes we'll do drag race x country and it'll be exactly the same you know in my country it'll be exactly the same rather than understanding that it functions hugely differently because the ways in which gender is understood in these societies mm. function hugely differently and so like the thing that i really love about the queer futures group is that is that we kind of get exposure to some of these some of these wider communities you know we're going to be in um in like um hopefully be in loads of loads of different countries and, and it offers kind of a really useful engagement with with that in internationally you know so i've been i've seen uh been at conferences and been talking to people who are doing queer work in istanbul looking at drag communities in the philippines you know and these kind of really beautiful wide-ranging bits of work and you know the joy of being in shanghai for me was that i talked about myra dubois doing uh, a solo version of i know him so well from chess and i sort of feel I've had this moment of being like oh my god i'm in shanghai and i'm talking about about Myra doing doing her solo, quite famous now, solo version of I Know Him So Well, where she just sings one part and so sits in silence for the whole thing. And so kind of like, you know, you're sharing practices in quite a fun way. Do you ever come up um, or does the group ever come up against like issues based on how queerness is conceptualised in different places? Like, have you ever not been able to speak about something in one location that is absolutely fine to talk about in a different one? Um, no, really. And I think there's been fears about that. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think that it rarely, it rarely is. I mean, you know, and often those, when we think about it, often those colonial, they, they, often those laws, these anti-homophobic laws are often colonial laws that are often mm -hmm. remnants of laws from the UK, right? And so, we, you know, to be aware that whenever we enter those spaces, particularly as white Westerners and white people from the UK, we enter from a position of privilege with a legacy of 
violence right and so yeah. you know if we go if we're going to places not always but often and so i think that 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 you know it's really it's really fascinating i think that often we enter those spaces and we're seen as really privileged and we can kind of get away with whatever right it's the local people on the ground who are less likely to be able to do that and so i think you know it's it's an interesting conversation but often what you know what counts as good politics in relation to kind of international queer politics is really tricky because often an understanding of um sexuality of sexuality through a western lens or gender through a western lens can come to hegemonize and and be really problematic in relation to kind of a more nuanced understanding of how that might be understood in other countries around the world 100 percent. that is such a good note to end on um but i'm not going to let you leave me so soon because i have one final question uh which mm-hmm. is what impression would you like to leave on the world oh gosh you know, I didn't. I should have thought about this before. I didn't. I, I, didn't, I totally didn't. Um, to be totally honest, um, and this is maybe slightly deep, but I am. I've been very aware recently that both my parents were quite ill when I was growing up, and I'm, I've now approached the age that my dad. I'm now the age that my dad was when he was first ill, um, and um, so for a long time. And I bet. And I've also been, now been sober for two years, and and before that, um, I was drinking and. Uh, so for a long time, I didn't think that I had a future. Just th- those things weren't really a thing that I was I was able to have um, because I just didn't see anyone with futures around me. And I think queerness does that too. Gayness does that too. That um, Jasper Poir talks about gay queers being endlessly cathected to death. That we kind of have this kind of legacy of death that hangs around that community, our communities and our lives and our sex lives and all these different things. And so I think it's only I'm only really just now in the last two years believing that i'm gonna live for more than you know a few years and so i don't know about what impression i want to leave i think that um, i'd like to i'd like it to be known that i was here um and that i and, and that i kept going uh and all of those sorts of things um i'd like to think that um I've been able to kind of bring some joy to people at different points and that i've helped people um but really he was here he had a nice time and he went away it's kind of all that's all right for me <laughs> dr joe was here i can i can see it now <laughs> dr. Joe was here. yeah yeah on a scratched on a toilet wall yeah yeah literally what is there anything that you want to direct people to um, anything you want to signpost or where can people find you um i am very sporadically on twitter as which is at Joe Parslow, J-O-E-P-A-R-S-L-O-W. Um, and if you Google my name, sometimes you get a, um, sometimes you get the fact that Darwin's butler was called Joseph Parslow. But if you Google my name, <laughs> once you get past that, you'll find me. And you people are always very, very welcome to email me to talk about queer stuff or drag stuff. If you're interested in doing a PhD or studying, you're very welcome to contact me. Um, I do try and check Twitter and Instagram every now and again, but I'm not on it very much. But you should come and have a look at Not Another Drag Competition, which happens at the RVT. Um, there's always good drag shows happening. So every so I would say if you're going to go and see a drag race show, totally fine. But just double check if there's not something else more fun happening. There's a great app called Out Savvy, uh, which is out S A 
S-A-V-V-Y, which does amazing uh, queer events and is like a ticketing service for queer events. You should always have a look. They've got stuff on every night. If you're in London, there's an Instagram called Hey Queer London, which lists every single queer event. And it's like amazing. There's so much happening every night. So um, go and populate queer spaces and buy drinks in them, even if they're soft drinks like me, to keep them going. That sounds amazing. That's perfect. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to an episode of Impressionable. If you want to keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram at ImpressionablePod. So that's at ImpressionablePod. And please rate us five stars. Share with your friends. I hope you really enjoyed the episode and I will be back soon for more. Okay, have a great week. Bye. (laughs) 